Welcome back to Brailcast, connecting the dots for blind people everywhere. And coming up this time... I don't regret knowing print. What I object to is that it was presented as an either-or choice. Why couldn't I have the best of both worlds? When I wanted to use print, I could do so. But I could also use Braille when I wanted to and not be made to feel like this was some kind of alien concept. Is Braille really just for blind people? How about the partially sighted? Happy New Year and happy World Braille Day. Today, the 4th of January 2021, is the 212th birthday of Louis Braille, inventor of the code that revolutionised literacy for blind people all over the world. In spite of intense opposition in Louis Braille's lifetime, the code has been adapted for use in dozens of languages and disciplines and is widely recognised throughout the world as the most effective means by which blind people can read and write. There's even a Braille chess code. But what about people who are partially sighted, who can just about read print if it's large enough? Stephen Anderson is one such person. A self-confessed Braille muggle, He's the proud owner of an honours degree in politics from the University of Leicester, a fluent French speaker, and director of music at the parish church of St Thomas in Kensaltown, where he also plays the organ. He's also played in the presence of two bishops, at two Church of England cathedrals, one Royal Peculiar, and several other high-profile churches and cathedrals in the UK and overseas. He was kind enough to agree to join me on the podcast to talk candidly about his experiences growing up and his thoughts about Braille. He also talked about the Louis Braille Museum, which he recently visited. I started by asking him to describe just how much he can see. I am partially sighted, although I am registered as blind. I'm only just within the threshold. I have three eye conditions, coloboma, microphthalmia and nystagmus, which essentially means I see in funny shapes. So in one eye, I see in the shape of a keyhole. The other I see like an acute or an e-acute going from down on the left up to the right. I am photophobic and my eyes wobble. So it is almost impossible to focus without contact lenses going in my eyes to force them to stay still. Sure. And that's the case now has it always been like that or was it better uh, looking back at sort of school life and that sort of thing i've recently had some changes uh, occur so i have double vision and that has recently evolved into triple vision which is not particularly nice but other than that my sight has broadly remained uh, the same throughout my life Okay, and you and I were at college together. That was a college for the blind. And before that, you went to a school for the blind for most of your secondary education. But I understand that the very early part of your secondary education and all of your primary education was in local mainstream school. So at what point were you introduced to Braille for the first time? So I was introduced to Braille for the first time when I was at St Vincent's. At the age of 16, I made a point of asking to have a look at Braille and to get to know it a bit better. And this came about because I used to get very tired when reading. There was one occasion where I was reading to the class from a reasonably large print book. 
the way my visual impairment manifests itself is that after a certain period of time, no matter how big the print is, I will become exhausted. So all I remember was reading to the group and then being woken up. Apparently, I had read for a considerable period of time, but ultimately, I had become so tired from reading, my body had just caved in. It was at that point that I remembered the little quips about blind people being able to read Braille in the dark. So if they turned the lights out in the halls of residence, the Braille users didn't have to go to sleep because they could read Braille in bed. So it was that sort of thing that made me think, maybe there's a more practical use for me here, and maybe I can benefit, despite having a considerable amount of useful vision, in the way that I live my life. Yeah, that's quite an incredible story. And the saddest part of that story is that you're not alone. I've heard similar stories from other partially sighted people who just have this constant state of fatigue because they have to strain their eyes too much. So presumably this means that there was a conscious decision made at an early age for you not to learn Braille. Could you perhaps tell us a bit more about that? Before I even went to school, the sensory and communication team from my local authority said to my parents that I could learn print or braille and they had to make a decision and they chose print. To be honest, I don't blame them, but I think it was a false choice. That is an incredibly binary choice and it's entirely understandable that your parents made the decision that they made. How did it make you feel at the time when I was in mainstream school, we were taught about Braille, I think, when I was in year three or maybe year four. But we were taught about it as if it was an alien concept. The blind do this. The blind do that. They, the other people, not you. And I think that really, I didn't realise at the time, but it stayed with me that this was something that was not for me. I was not entitled to it because I wasn't blind enough. Maybe no one had said that directly, but I think it was implied by the fact I was being taught it rather than being made part of that world. And were you given the opportunity to learn Braille a lot earlier, say in primary school? What would you say the impact of that would have been? I think the immediate difference would have been that I would never have been quite as exhausted as I always seemed to be at school and at home because I was having to read absolutely everything. And besides, most of the stuff that I was accessing was small print and I had to really squint to be in with a chance and I, I would often just fall asleep reading something. It would have benefited my career as well, because I play by ear. I cannot read print music. If you put a score in front of me, I will not understand a single word that it says. But if I'd have been taught Braille, I would have been able to evolve into knowing and being able to access Braille music. And sometimes I get a note or I get a bar of music that I just can't work out because it's too nuanced. It's too complicated. 
it would have given me a resource. It might have been an expensive one, but it would have been a resource that I do not have access to. And I think there is a huge amount of regret that I was not given the tools to succeed. And instead, I have to go without because a group of sighted people thought that it was in my best interests when it turns out it wasn't. So in a nutshell, then, it sounds like what you're saying is that although you don't blame your parents and although you recognise that you have a lot of residual vision, you would have preferred in hindsight to have learnt Braille much earlier. I don't regret knowing print. I don't regret being given access to the world of print. What I object to is that it was presented as an either or totally binary choice. Why couldn't I have the best of both worlds? When I wanted to use print, I could do so. But I could also use Braille when I wanted to and not be made to feel like this was some kind of alien concept. So we've talked a bit already about how you were taught about Louis Braille in school and you said it was about year three or year four and I think that's not just because you were blind I think there is something on the national curriculum that says that everybody has to be taught about Louis Braille how thorough would you say that was I mean I can't imagine you spent much more than an afternoon on it we spent an assembly on it which I would say is about half an hour and it was sort of there once was this man called Louis Braille and he invented this medium of writing for the blind and now they can read stuff. Isn't that marvellous? Uh, go to your classes. And it was literally as simple as that. Yeah, that corresponds almost exactly with the learning that I did about Louis Braille when I was a child and I was at a blind school. So we spent an afternoon on it, I think, and we learned a little bit about how he was blinded in an accident and how he made this braille code and at least for us it was a braille code that we were using and even if some of the people in the class weren't using it there were people in the class who were so it was uh, it was a particularly interesting bit of history for us whereas it sounds like for you in mainstream primary school it was almost a history lesson um not about what happens in the present day but about what happened in the past and how uh, blind people couldn't read and now well there is this code called braille but it's not really relevant anymore and I wondered if you could elaborate on the two facets of that really the facet of whether braille is irrelevant to you or whether braille was, was irrelevant to you at the time but also um, were they perhaps saying that braille is not relevant completely because of the advent of technology and that sort of thing and I'd be interested to know how you would respond to that so in terms of Braille being irrelevant to me, it was irrelevant to me because other people wanted it to be irrelevant to me. But it's certainly something that I am using this period of not really going anywhere to get back into my life and to make a significant difference, particularly with my eyesight changing, albeit only slightly. I think it. It, 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 is, it is now necessary to be more of a part of my life and to put right or wrong as well, that it should not have been for somebody else to tell me that it was not for me. I should have made that decision or at least it should have been open to me. 
As far as Braille being irrelevant per se, I think um, there are lots of ways in which Braille is evolving. So, of course, I know about Braille displays. I know about using Braille on the iPhone, using VoiceOver. It's coming into the 21st century and is being incorporated into the technologies of the future. It used to be a separate thing. You needed to have a separate piece of technology to do something with Braille. You needed to have different bits and bobs going on everywhere. Whereas now, a lot of what you need is integrated into current technology, or at the very least, can be integrated into, say, a computer without too much difficulty, which I think gives Braille some hope. Well, that's certainly very encouraging to hear. Thank you for that. I'd like to start to turn our attention towards the Louis Braille Museum, which I believe you have visited. Before I do that, uh, just to quickly digress and talk about French. You studied French to A-level standard. Was there a particular reason for that, or was it just because that's what you were told to do? I, I always had a fascination for languages, and particularly when uh, me and my family went abroad, we would almost always go to France, and I liked the idea of going into a baker's and asking for what I wanted. France at that time was a place where if you didn't know French and you weren't in central Paris, you were in a bit of trouble. So I realised very quickly that knowing another language would be extremely useful. Yeah, that all makes sense. And from conversations that we've had previously, I understand that when you were taught French, particularly at GCSE level, um, you were taught French in a class of Braillists and that perhaps this might have given you more impetus in addition to the factors that we've already talked about. This may have given you more impetus for learning Braille. Could you perhaps talk about that? When I was at school, the only real interaction before I requested braille lessons of my own accord was braille in french not in english because in english lessons everybody knew braille who was using it so they never needed to ask what a contraction was whereas when we came up against an e acute the french teacher would go remember it's the four sign so of course i have embedded in my head the four sign is he acute, for the, specifically for that reason. And I think that's part of why my head started to turn, as if to go, hang on, why can't I be part of this? And could you just clarify the class size? I guess it was quite small because it was in a special school. And could you clarify how many of that very small class were reading Braille? Because I imagine that potentially seeing people use braille would have normalized it in a way that it wouldn't have been normalized in mainstream school yes so when i was doing my french gcse or in fact when i was doing my gcse per se there were five in the class two were braille users three were large print and the two of the two that used braille one had no sight at all and the other had about the same vision 
as me. That person had been taught Braille from when she was a baby. So it was at that point that I started to go, hang on a minute, what's going on here? Yeah, so there's this paradox, isn't there, where in mainstream school, if you'd have used Braille, you would have felt probably like you were the odd one out. Whereas in blind school, it's almost like in blind school, when you use print, you're the odd one out, or at least using Braille is is not as odd one out as it would be in mainstream school. And I wonder if that's possibly why it was presented as such a binary choice when you were younger, because the local authority didn't want to have you sort of as the odd one out reading Braille when actually you had perfectly good vision and therefore could have read print and therefore, all right, the print might have been a bit larger, but it wouldn't have uh, left you open to quite as much uh, bullying and strange looks. And, you know, I I wonder if that factored into their decision. I think that's probably about right, yes. Perhaps it's also the fact that special schools recognise the importance of Braille and that local authorities and perhaps by extension mainstream schools don't, as a rule, see the benefit that Braille can bring. They only see the cost that it brings, the inconvenience that it brings in the first instance to teach it. They don't see the teach the man how to fish part as being useful. They just see it as, well, that's just quite annoying for one teacher who has to print a bit more out. And it's just a little bit easier if he only if he only learns one of them. And I think that that was at play there. And it's a real shame. Sure. So let's talk about the Louis Braille Museum now. And let's first of all clarify the Louis Braille Museum that we're talking about is a house and it is actually Louis Braille's house. So starting sort of at the beginning, when was it that Louis Braille lived in that house? That was his childhood home. It's actually the house where the accident which made him go blind took place. He then spent many years in it. I think actually he may have died in it as well. Okay, and perhaps before we talk about the specifics of the Louis Braille house or the Louis Braille Museum... Could you tell us how it came to be that you went to visit it and what it was that you hoped to gain, perhaps, from the experience? So I was on holiday in Paris, in any case, with a few other visually impaired people. And I mentioned that the Louis Braille House Stroke Museum is right next to Disneyland Paris. And as a consequence, we went up there and got a taxi up to the Louis Braille Museum and spent the best part of three quarters of a day going round and taking it all in. Right, okay. And when you say you spent the best part of three quarters of a day looking round and taking it all in, I imagine there was quite a lot to take in because it was only as an adult that I really became aware of the darker side of Louis Braille's history Uh, Or indeed, we perhaps shouldn't be calling him Louis Braille because in French it would be Louis Braille. Um, So we we just weren't aware of this stuff. Um, I certainly wasn't made aware as a child of the real struggle that um, Braille 
the code had to become popular and Braille, the person had to make his code popular. Um, you know, the, the, the emancipation of blind people wasn't really talked about. The fact that Braille books got burnt at the blind school in Louis Braille's lifetime because people could not accept that his code was uh, fit for purpose or good or or anything. You know, none of this was really talked about. So I imagine you'd have discovered a lot of this while you were at the museum. So perhaps could you give us a high-level overview then of what it was that you took in, what it was that you learnt from the experience and what perhaps you learnt in adulthood that you really wish you'd have learnt in childhood in that assembly when they talked about Louis Braille? I certainly learnt a lot at the Louis Braille Museum. And incidentally, you are quite right. If you are speaking French, his name pronounced correctly is Louis Braille. I learnt a lot more about the story and was able to put a lot of the bits of the jigsaw together, which was immensely beneficial. So when I visited and when we arrived, I was with a few other visually impaired people. And of course, the guides that they have there, they see four visually impaired people standing at the door. They are out there like a shot. They're, they're rather pleased to see the, um, the desired clientele on site. We then got taken on a private tour and we first went into the workshop and that was where the accident happened. And they showed you how he lived and they showed you, of course, where the accident took place and how it took place. As far as the rest of the house is concerned, they used the staircases and such like to tell the story of the struggle that he had immediately after going blind, how he dealt with that. In the first instance, it was not very well. How he came about to come up with Braille, and then the struggle he had for that to be recognised. And I think, in a way, it was a bit of a reckoning for me, because he had had huge struggles getting the French authorities to recognise Braille as a means of writing and reading. It was then a struggle for me to be allowed to access that resource. So I felt a certain connection to him in that sense. I also found out that he was a musician himself, which in my many years in special education, I had not been told. So I was rather pleased to find that out. Yes, I was quite inspired by that as well. He was a church organist, nonetheless, and a church organist at a relatively young age, and in spite of his blindness, and in spite of uh, Braille not being a very well-established code, and blind people not historically sort of doing very well for themselves, so this was a real source of inspiration for me as a child as well. Looking more broadly at the museum, you've already told us a little bit about the layout of it and how welcoming they are to blind and partially sighted people. Feel free to expand on that. And also, were there any particular exhibits which you saw which were particularly impactful for you? Well, the Louis Braille house is quite spacious, but not necessarily luxurious. And 
Unfortunately, there is no step-free access, but I guess that is to be expected. In terms of exhibitions, they do occasionally have things that come out of the woodwork and they're very happy to put them on show. So I've been to the Louis Braille Museum twice. The second time I went, they had Braillers out from the 1940s right the way through to the present day. And they also had on show uh, a Perkins with the outer shell ripped off. So you could see exactly how it worked. Now, luckily for me, on both occasions, because they recognised a visually impaired person was in the room, the glass cases that they had everything in were unlocked and I was allowed to touch whatever I wanted, provided, as they put it, I was respectful. However, my first visit had quite a stunning effect on me because they had some very old bits of braille paper that had been produced. And there was one which they believed to be the first sheet of completed braille written by the man himself. And it was the Hail Mary prayer. Interestingly, the G and the J were the other way round. So when I was reading it, the je, as in the I, J-E, was written G. And grâce, as in grace, was written J-R-A, circumflex, C-E. And it was very interesting that he had either not made a decision on which way to put round G and J, or decided at a later date to switch them round. Yes, that is really interesting, especially in the context of UEB, which we've talked a little bit about earlier on, and the fact that UEB represents quite a significant change to the Braille code. This uh, J and G reversal suggests that perhaps change has always been a part of the Braille code. So it sounds from what you've said about the Louis Braille Museum that they really make an effort to include blind and partially sighted people. They're very welcoming of them. They unlock the glass cases, uh, all of that sort of thing. Is there anything about it that is really not accessible? Well, upon leaving, there is a tribute book where a statue of his head is laid out at the front door, in front of which is a book where you can leave your tributes to Louis Braille, or, or as some people put, I came from Israel and I had a nice day, or merci à toutes et à tous, thank you to one and all, uh, pour une journée uh, avec beaucoup de joie, a very enjoyable day. And I couldn't help but notice that the only way to leave your tribute was to pick up the pen next to it and write in handwriting. Braille users could not use that book or could not leave their tribute in any other way. The irony of that, of course, was not lost on me. Yeah, that is very ironic. And I wonder what would happen if somebody brought in a slate and stylus and tried to put the book in the slate and stylus, how they would uh, respond to that one. Well, there are plenty of brailers there. So if, you, if it's going to happen somewhere, that's the place that you should do it. 
Well, who knows? Maybe one day they'll have a Braille visitor's book to go along with the print visitor's book. It sounds like that's, in the grand scheme of things, though, a very minor snag and that you would, in general, recommend that people go and visit the Louis Braille Museum if they have the opportunity to do so. Assuming that they want to go and visit, how do they actually get there and what's that process like? Is it an accessible process to get there? So it depends how you're getting there. If you're going there by train, you go to Marne-la-Vallée station, you walk outside, you get a taxi, which will be about 15 euros each way, and they'll take you straight to the Louis Braille Museum. Entry is five euros, incidentally. If you're travelling by car, you just turn up and park on the driveway. And do you have to make an appointment to come into the museum, or can you just turn up booking an appointment i think is helpful just so that you don't have loads of people turning up at once but it is not necessary and you can turn up unannounced like i did fantastic and separately to the louis braille house i believe there's a really interesting story about louis braille's hands and i think you might have said that you've seen where louis braille's hands are buried would you like to tell that story yes louis braille's hands are buried in the cemetery which is quite close to the louis braille house stroke museum the story came about when the french government said they wanted to recognise Louis Braille's contribution to the life of the French people by putting his body in the Pantheon. Now, the Pantheon is a building in central Paris and is home to basically every French person who ever meant something. So you've got former French presidents You've got political thinkers like Jean-Jacques Rousseau. And then tucked away in a corner is Louis Braille himself. As for how he got there, but his hands didn't, when the French government put that request into the local people, they agreed for his body to be moved to the Pantheon on the occasion of his 50th anniversary of death. On the condition that they kept his hands. So he was exhumed, his hands chopped off, his hands were reburied in Coupevre, the village where he lived. The rest of his body was cremated, taken to the Potion, and they had a little service which included Helen Keller, and he was interred in a private room there. So we're coming up towards the end of the interview now and I just wondered if it was worth reflecting just before we finish on a couple of very broad topics. Firstly the the general emotional impact of seeing the Braille exhibits and has your perception of Braille changed since visiting the Louis Braille Museum? Has your perception of blindness changed since visiting the Louis Braille Museum? Yes I think it was actually the notice on the door which kind of summed it up for me. In this house on January the 4th, 1809, was born Louis Braille, the inventor of the system of writing in raised dots for use by the blind. He opened the doors of knowledge to all those who cannot see. And I, I 
reflected on the fact that I was in this slightly awkward predicament. And I know, Matthew, we've talked about this privately before. When you asked about my visual impairment, it takes me a few minutes to explain everything. Whereas yours is, I can't see anything. That's it. And I think that awkwardness and that difficulty in being in this halfway house and being stuck in the middle really hit me that I wasn't good enough to see print, but I wasn't good enough to see Braille either. And I felt that that was wrong and sad. And at that point, I became committed to having Braille as part of my life for my own benefit and that I should not care about what any sighted person may or may not think about the matter. Yeah, so what would you say to people, Stephen, who are in the same position now that you were in in primary school where they're not being offered Braille? Or what would you say to teachers who want to offer Braille but who don't want their students to be bullied or harassed for using Braille? What would you say to children with your level of vision who've been offered Braille tuition but who have turned it down because they don't think that Braille is fashionable? From a general perspective, I would say that visually impaired children are likely to be picked on by other children in any case. It's a sad and unfortunate fact. And whether it's Braille or whether it's print, I don't think that affects the level of bullying that you might be subjected to. I think that only affects the type of bullying that you might be subjected to. I was subjected to how many fingers am I holding up? Quite a lot. I was subjected to people kicking the cane. I was subjected to people saying, you're about to walk into a castle or stupid things like that. And that those things will happen irrespective of whether you are a print user or whether you're a Braille user. It's just a different type of negative experience. So to anyone who is thinking about learning Braille, who is in a similar position to me, or to those who are thinking about teaching Braille but are worried about the ramifications, I don't think there are any significant ramifications that should be a barrier to the teaching and learning of Braille for the reasons that I've just described. You've got nothing to lose. Some fantastic words of encouragement there. Thank you very much for those. And very, very finally, before we finish the interview, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the podcast. I wonder if we could finish by asking you to reflect once again on the parallel between you being a church organist and Louis Braille being a church organist. You said earlier on that you were pleased to find out that Louis Braille was a musician. Having now found out that Louis Braille is a musician, is this a particular source of inspiration for you? How do you feel about being a musician? And, uh, you know, is, is there anything that you want to finish on on that theme? It's something that has enabled me to have a slightly closer connection to the story of Louis Braille 
that's for sure. And certainly when I have reflected on his life and when I have been at his graveside and was allowed to touch his tomb at the Pantheon, which is not normally permitted, it's certainly something that enabled me to feel closer to his life and to his story and ultimately to the community that he served so very well. Stephen Anderson bringing to a close this episode of Brailcast. Thank you very much for listening. If you'd like some information about the Louis Braille house that we talked about, please see the show notes at brailcast.com. If you would like to suggest a topic for future inclusion on Brailcast or you'd like to give us some feedback, please send us an email. The email address is news at brailcast.com. For now, though, from myself, Matthew Horsepool, and the rest of the Railcast team, thanks again for listening, and we'll see you again next time. Bye for now.